when I think about our energy future, I'm optimistic about the talent that we're going to be able to attract. When I talk to young people today, I talk to our coworkers, when we recruit others from the outside of our industry, you know, our industry is a place where you can make a difference. It is absolutely a place you can make a difference, not just for today, but for decades to come and for your children's children. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Hello and welcome to a new edition of EEI's Global Circuit Podcast. My name is Lawrence Jones, Vice President of International Programs here at the Edison Electric Institute. Today we'll be joined by Mr. Warren Baxter. He's the Executive Chairman of Ameren Corporation and also Vice Chairman of Edison Electric Institute. Warren, welcome to the Global Circuit. Oh, Lawrence, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. First of all, I want to start by talking a little bit about Ameren Corporation, obviously a leading utility in North America. But for our listeners around the world who are not familiar with Ameren, can you talk a little bit about the company, how it started, where it operates? And also, I think more interestingly, is joining to today being one of the leading utilities in the United States? Thanks. I'd be happy to do so. So Ameren, we're a Fortune 500 regulated electric and natural gas energy provider. And um, I like to say we're, we're located in the heartland of America. We operate out of the states of Missouri and Illinois, and, and we're headquartered in St. Louis, which is where I've been, you know, frankly, born and raised and virtually worked my entire life. So we provide transmission, distribution, and, and generation services to about two and a half million electric and a million natural gas customers as well. And so when you think about the electric side, people always like to ask us about our, our generation portfolio. And honestly, we have a real diverse generation portfolio. You know, includes wind, solar, nuclear, coal, natural gas, and, and hydro facilities. So you know, quite diverse is how we, we serve our customers. And you know, I tell you one thing, I'm really proud, especially being a, a native here. You know, we we have been part of the fabric of the communities we serve for you know, frankly, over 100 years. And a little known fact is that Ameren, we were used to be called Union Electric back in the day. We lit up the World's Fair in 1904 in St. In, in St. Louis. So it was exciting stuff. So look, I have the honor and privilege to work with you know, approximately 9,000 co-workers, you know, who are, you know, I like to say are purpose-driven and they're dedicated to our vision, which is leading the way to a sustainable energy future and, and our mission, the power of the quality of life. And you asked about our journey and how we've become a leading U.S. utility. I appreciate you saying that. You know, it's really all about our co-workers, you know, their strong commitment to, to the vision and mission that I just said, and, and frankly, their excellent execution of our strategy. And our strategy keeps our customers right at the center every day. And, um, and by doing all that, you know, we've been able to make important investments in critical infrastructure that has delivered uh, top quartile reliability at electric rates that are you know, among the lowest in the country. And at the same time, deliver really strong total shareholder returns, especially since we exited the unregulated generation business back in 2013. So that's a quick trip around Ameren right there. That's great. I mean, we'll come back and talk about some of the highlights you mentioned, but I just want to go back to 2014 when you took over as chairman, president, and CEO. I've had several of your peers here on the podcast, and we've talked about their first day on the job when they became so-called commander or servant-in-chief. Can you talk about how it was for you when, when you realized that you were about to take on the helm of running such an important organization? How were you prepared both mentally, but also, I think, emotionally for day one on the job? You know, Lawrence, well, it was eight years ago. You know, I, it seems like I can recall that day just like it was yesterday. And 
I'll be honest with you, it was a kind of a knee wobbling experience. You know, when you when you realize that, you know, you are now in this role and you know, part of it, you know, I was obviously very honored and, and excited that, that the board of directors had the confidence in me. But I will tell you, I was very humbled by it, too. You know, you realize real quickly in this role that, it, you know, it's not about me, the leader. It was really about how I was going to lead and serve with our, you know, 9,000 dedicated co-workers to to meet our you know, our customers' needs and expectations. And, and we're talking about millions of customers. As I just said a moment ago, customers, families, and their businesses. And when you're part of the critical infrastructure of the country and their communities, well, then, you know, you, you really take notice and you realize real quickly, you know, that you're not just in the energy business, but you're in the customer business and you take it seriously. And so... So it was interesting, you know, as long as you, you use that term servant in chief, I thought that was really terrific. It's a perfect term for what leaders are really called to do. It's to serve. And, um, you know, I'm a big believer in servant leadership. And so when you put all that together, you also realize as, as I was stepping into the role that, you know, you don't know it all on day one. Well, we're fortunate at Amron that, you know, in my role, I had a, a lot of experience, different experiences before I took the CEO role. I, I was in finance. I was in operations, you know, strategy, risk management, all those things helped quite a bit. But one thing, you know, I really need to make sure I did was, was go what I would like to say as a, as a listening tour. I'll go around and, and have town halls with, with coworkers and, and the labor leaders, which are obviously very close partners of ours. One-on-one meetings with directors and Ameren leaders, meetings with customers, regulators, policymakers, and you know, I had the good fortune to pick the brain of, of several current and former CEOs in our industry and outside. And, and all those things really put me in a position, both mentally and emotionally, to step in and really do, oh, I should say realize. But um, what I, I realized from day one and, and continue to do today is, look, we have real strong leaders and passionate co-workers the Ameren, and not just Ameren, but in our industry. And when you have that and when they're committed to your vision and mission, you know, you, you really know that you have a strong foundation to build on. And um, so that's how I saw it. And that's how, that's how I, I hopefully led through the, the eight years as, as CEO. Well, we're going to come back and talk about an important topic I know is dear to your heart, and that is the issue of grid resilience. But, but before I do that, in terms of Amra's journey, as you've talked about the last eight years of your under your helm, you know what would you say were some of the the milestones that you can today look back and say that was a great great milestone, and you're glad you accomplished it. Can you just talk about a few of them? You bet. Well, you know, I, I would say that the milestones that we achieved was truly a team effort. I mean, you know, I talked about one of them really a moment ago, and that was. Now, as I stepped into my role, we completed our divestiture of our unregulated generation business. And so what that led for us was to our ability to, to focus on you know, an execution of our strategy that was focused on our customers and on the regulated business. And the launch is really pretty straightforward. We invest in energy infrastructure uh, consistent with you know, good frameworks. You advocate for responsible energy and, and economic policies, and you capitalize on opportunities to benefit your customers. All that led to what I would say was a really important milestone, and that was, you know, focusing on our customers, keeping them at the center of our strategy, and delivering results that have been really quite good for us in terms of reliability, you know, top quartile in the industry, electric rates, which are among the lowest, 25% below the national average, investing in digital technologies to enhance the customer experience, and then Ultimately, it led to getting a top ranking by J.D. Power among our Midwestern peers for our Ameren, Illinois enterprise, and number three for Ameren, Missouri. And so the big milestone, if customers at the center, you're producing results for them. I'll tell you another milestone, I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit later, is, is our focus on sustainability. 
right? Uh, those, you know, we have four pillars to that environmental, social impact, governance, and, and sustainable growth. And that focus has really driven a great deal of value. And, and when you put those things together, coupled with some really important wins, working with stakeholders on the policy standpoint, including you know, Lawrence, one that we just did as an industry, working with, with the federal government and key stakeholders to get the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, really big win, but also some state policies, really gives us the ability to put all those things together to deliver real value for our shareholders. And um, you know, we've had shareholder returns since we've exited the unregulated generation business, so nearly 220% you know, over those past eight or nine years. And it all, it all holds together. It's, uh, you know, we call it the virtuous cycle. Work with for the customers, with stakeholders that deliver real value for shareholders. We'll come back to this whole issue of your sustainability value proposition. I actually like the phrase uh, sustainability value proposition, but let's go back and talk a little bit about what I know is very important for this industry. And that is the, the plethora of unpredictable climate-related hazards that are hitting the industry, hitting the infrastructure around the world. IPCC already talked about the fact that we should expect more of these kinds of extreme weather events. And I'm sure, Emerin, given where you are in the country, in the U.S., you had your share of dealing with some of these uh, some of these extreme weather events. So can you just talk a little bit about the preparation? How, how has the company prepared itself to respond to these kinds of events? And maybe talk a little bit about adaptation and hardening. What have you done to sort of make sure that your system is ready? Yeah. Well, thanks, Lars. You know, you're Right. This is at the top of mind of every CEO in our space because we have seen, you know, the extreme instances of, of weather and other events that have affected our service territory. We don't get hurricanes here in the Midwest, but we certainly have tornadoes. You know, we experience record flooding, ice storms, extreme temperatures and the like. And so when reliability is so important, it always has been, but even more so today and our customers' needs and expectations are rising, we knew that we had to take steps to mitigate these risks and, and take you know a lot of actions. You know, it doesn't come automatically. So one thing was clear, but we knew we had to meaningfully increase our investments in energy infrastructure. And so one of the first things we did, Lawrence, was that we went to work with key stakeholders to put constructive energy policies in place to, to really support these investments in, in Missouri and Illinois and even at the federal level, right? It's important to have the right policies to support those investments. And then once we did that, you know, we set forth a really detailed plan that was designed to try to harden the energy grid. And over the last decade, you know, we've spent, you know, well over $20 billion in capital expenditures and things like new substations, transformers, concrete poles, and varying distribution lines, right? It seems like straightforward blocking and tackling, but, you know, you got to execute those projects well. We enhanced our tree trimming program in a meaningful way, but also we invested in smart technologies, right, to help detect and locate and isolate these disturbances so we can be, you know, have a more reliable energy grid. So at the end of the day, you know, all those things put together, plus using drone technologies and sensors, all those things led to the reliability really improving over the last decade, 10 to 15 percent, and being top quartile in the industry. And so those things, you know, you, you just have to stay at the front of your strategy because reliability is, is core to what we do. And then not only have we done it in the past, but we're very focused on doing it in the future. Yeah, you talked about in your response, the first question, you already mentioned the word infrastructure. You've said it a couple of times. And I know you all have developed, Amra has developed your 10-year plan, I guess, looking at infrastructure. And you have sort of a regulated infrastructure investments in your pipeline. And I was curious, you know, how was the pipeline developed? And what are some of the main elements of, of this uh, very interesting set of uh, what you call it, regulated infrastructure investments? Yeah, you know, we 
you're right. In our space, we look in terms of decades, right? We don't look at really the next two, three, even five years. We look in terms of, of decades. And we've, you know, we've put together a, a plan and a process that whereby we've identified what we like to call a robust pipeline of critical energy infrastructure investments. So over the next decade, we see capital expenditure opportunities in excess of $45 billion. As for a lot of the things that I just talked about, right, the standard grid hardening projects that we just went through, but I tell you, it's more than that. It includes significant transmission projects. You know, you think about these regional transmission projects are going to be so important for not only grid resilience, but really to enable the greater levels of renewable resources that we know we're going to need and to transition to a cleaner energy future. It's going to be includes investments for electrification infrastructure, includes investments, obviously, for the clean energy transition, renewables, among others. And it includes digital investments. A lot of people think about, you know, don't think about those, but they are huge and important investments for the energy grid, for cybersecurity, but also for, for our customers. And so we did this as part of a long-term planning process that considered grid resiliency, the transition to a cleaner portfolio, factored in customer affordability, but also, you know, thinking about energy equity, right? Making sure that we're investing in those areas throughout our entire service territory, which is both urban and renewal, to make sure that we're meeting all customers' energy needs. Yeah, so I, I think that's great. And the whole point you mentioned about equity and, you know, in terms of providing services, I think is a key one. And, and certainly, I think we'll maybe just touch upon that later on in the conversation. But I want to move to 2030, looking beyond, well, 2030 and beyond. So you have your Emirates sustainability value proposition. And as you indicated, it's based on, you know, four basic pillars. Can you talk about the pillars, uh, uh, Warner, and maybe just give us an idea on some of the targets and, and some of the goals that have been accomplished to date? Ah, you bet, Lawrence. You know, we, when we think about sustainability and we talk about our sustainability value proposition, it has four pillars. And I mentioned them a moment ago, but I'll repeat them here. It's, it's environmental, the social impact, it's governance and sustainable growth. So let me talk about each one of those individually. So in terms of environmental, right, it's always at the top of the mind for those in our space. And I'll tell you, you know, our goal there is, is really quite straightforward. It is to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050 across our entire business, both electricity and natural gas. But, you know, we have strong interim targets too, right? Uh, we're not just going to wait till 2050. We're getting at it today. And goals are easy, but you have to have a plan to achieve that. And so we have in place a plan to achieve those goals. It's called our integrated resource plan, which, you know, working with the Electric Power Research Institute, you know, that plan is consistent with the Paris Agreement to limit the rise to less than one and a half degrees Celsius. So that's that's our you know our primary goal in environmental. So when you think about social impact, I talked about a couple of those things already. You know, strong reliability, low customer rates, all those things. But I tell you what, social impact is more than that. From our perspective, it gets into, you know, what are you doing for the community? And uh, and obviously we lean forward into the community from a philanthropic standpoint. For, for many years, but especially during these last couple of years for COVID, the community was in really significant need. And we leaned forward there in, in a meaningful way. Over the last three years, we've contributed over $140 million to the community, which includes energy assistance. But at the same time, you know, we focus on things like inclusive growth, economic growth. And so we, when we do that, we focus on diverse supplier spend, not just around the country, but within our community. And, and last year alone, we, we spent over $900 million with diverse suppliers to help drive inclusive growth. In fact, our honored EEI gave us an award as a result of that. And, and those actions, you know, you put those three things together is one of the reasons why Diversity Inc. 
the name Amron is one of the uh, is the top utility for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, in 2021, been on their list, you know, the top five list for the last decade. And we don't do it for the awards, Lawrence. You know, we do it because we know it ultimately makes a difference. So when we think about social impact, that that's how we think there. And then we think about governance too. That's our third pillar. And Obviously, governance starts with a very strong and diverse and robust board of directors, which we have, which is among the most diverse in the industry. You know, we recently achieved sustainability and diversity officer. We combined those two positions. And, uh, you know, again, we believe that is forward leaning. At the same time, from a governance perspective, and ESG being at the top of the mind of so many folks, and we put um, ESG metrics in our incentive compensation. Right? ESG metrics for workforce and supplier diversity, as well as our clean energy transition. So those things, coupled with just enhanced disclosures around climate and political contributions, you know, that all is part of the governance pillar. And all of these things add up if you're doing these things well, really gets us in a position to have sustainable growth, which is our fourth pillar. And you, know, you heard me talk about it already. You know, we were an industry leader in terms of what we've been able to generate in terms of earnings per share growth over the last Eight years since we exited the, the unregulated generation business, 8% compound annual growth rate. Uh, our dividend per share went up about 38%, and that's generated the TSR that I talked about a little bit earlier, of 220%. But we're not done. You know, you look ahead. That's the past. And so, you know, in terms of targets for sustainable growth, we have 6 to 8% compound annual growth rate for earnings per share. For 22 to 26, we're going to target having our dividend grow at that same pace of our long-term earnings per share growth. And, and we think we can continue to do that by executing the strategy that we talked about before. That's um, Those are our four sustainability value proposition pillars, and we're going to continue to stay very focused on them. I want to pick up what you just mentioned, uh, uh, Warner, regarding, you know, the, the ESG sort of pillars you described. And, you know, last year, there are a couple of things that I find intriguing. I'd love to, you to talk about it. First of all, you named your first chief sustainability officer. But then you also develop these metrics for supplier diversity and even, you know, tied compensation of your executives, long-term and medium-term or short-term compensation. You tied it to some of these metrics. Why did you take these uh, these particular steps? Why was it necessary? Yeah, thank you for mentioning that, Lawrence. We, no, you're right. We have taken what we like to call forward-thinking actions when it comes to our sustainability value proposition. And, and that includes ESG and metrics as well as DNI efforts. And you know, we did it for several reasons. One, we did it because it's frankly consistent with our vision, right? Our vision is leading the way to a sustainable energy future. Well, visions are nice things on a poster, but you have to have things to back it up. And so that's one of the reasons why we did it. But I'll tell you, the reason we did it too is that these actions from our perspective are absolutely consistent with delivering superior value to, to our customers, to our communities, to the environment, and, and to our shareholders. And, you know, when you think about all those things, you think about, the, you know, those are key stakeholders, every one of those groups. You know, the reality is, Lawrence, and, and you know this, you know, sustainability matters. ESG metrics are at the top of their mind. D, E, and I, things are at the top of their minds. And so, you know, if we're going to be in the customer and stakeholder business, like I talked about before, well, then you need to lean forward and, and put some real metrics, some real strategies. Hope's not a strategy. You got to put together strategies and metrics in place to achieve those. And so, you know, as now as we've had the opportunity to, to talk more about these things, you know, the, the feedback that we're getting from our stakeholders, they're very pleased that we're leaning forward. We're on the leading edge, especially when it comes to executive compensation, putting specific metrics out there. And we're going to continue to lean forward because we think it's going to deliver long-term value for all those stakeholders. 
Excellent. So I want to go back one or two. You mentioned COVID-19, and, and obviously 2020 was, without a doubt, perhaps one of the most difficult times for our industry in terms of having to really rethink everything, right? And couple that with where the world is right now, uh, given what's happening in Ukraine with the invasion of Russia, how did Amran navigate, one, talking about the disruptions caused by the pandemic and coping with the uncertainty that we see in front of us? But then I think on a more personal matter, from a, from a leader perspective, what are some of the challenges you see leaders like yourself having to grapple with in dealing with this sort of barrage of uncertainty from both the pandemic, but also now the situation, the geopolitical situation we're dealing with uh, with regards to what's happening in Ukraine? Yeah, well, you're, you're right. It, um, you step back, uh, I think about eight years ago when I stepped back to my role, you know, you, you always sort of envision these scenarios. I, I will tell you, pandemic was not at the top of the things that were on my list. But I remember quite clearly, you know, we're actually at an Edison Electric Institute meeting in early 2020, had some conversations and, you know, post that meeting and, you know, we came back here to St. Louis, talked to our leaders. It was the clear reality that the pandemic was upon us. And I tell you some of the things we did, you know, we we look back and, you know, when you're in the throes of it, you're never quite sure. But I tell you, one of the things that, that we did right away is that, you know, we came together as a, as a leadership team. And we aligned on the one thing that absolutely mattered the most. And that was one of our core values, and that's safety. And that's where we just simply never compromise. We've never done it before, and it was was crystal clear what we had to do as as we moved into the pandemic. And, you know, Lawrence, you know, we we recognize that, you know, when it comes to things like this, not only do we have to take the actions to keep our coworkers and our customers safe, but they also had to feel safe. And so, you know, that, that required, you know, sort of different actions, different types of communications, among other things. And it also required us to be, frankly, more agile than we probably thought we ever could be. <laughs> you know, leaning forward and counting on our coworkers to innovate and execute a plan that, you know, while you, you practice these things, but until it becomes reality, you know, it, it's, it's really encouraging to see how they stepped up. And so, you know, with those, I would say, principles, I'll tell you some of the things we did was, number one, we quickly identified those workers that could work remotely, and we quickly removed them to a remote work environment. Fortunately, you know, we had made some really important strategic digital investments you know, in the years prior to that that gave us the ability almost to move immediately to do that. But um, you know our industry, those listening know our industry, you know, half of our, our coworkers still have to remain in the power plants in the field right on site because we have to serve our customers. And so we immediately brought teams together, working with our labor uh, leaders and skilled workers to put in place what I would characterize were robust safety protocols, keep our coworkers and our customers and communities safe. We immediately brought on medical experts uh, to advise us, work closely with um, the regulators and local and, and federal agencies, and of course our industry colleagues to adopt the best practices, which included a robust contact tracing system. And the thing I said before, you know, we realized that one of the most important things we do is communicate extensively with our coworkers, not just about um, physical security, but we also realized the types of communications we had to do to keep our our team, you know, very focused on cybersecurity, right? And cyber, good cyber practices. So we're up in our game across the board in all those areas. And so all those things, you know, I think were good for our company. And it gave us the ability to execute our strategy. But as I said a moment ago, we realized that, you know, we're part of the, the fabric of this community. So we also had to very focus a great deal on the community. And so we, you know, frankly, many others in the industry did the same. 
you know, we, we suspended, you know, disconnections for our customers, right? So they could go through what was a challenging time. We certainly provided, you know, COVID energy assistance funding, among other things, which we talked a little bit about earlier. When you put all that together, you know, the team just kept their head down and we executed our strategy uh, through the pandemic. And, and as we think about the crisis that we see now, the geopolitical risks and, and the risks that we face with potential cybersecurity attacks and all these other things, you know, our team is... They're used to dealing with very challenging situations. We're going to continue to be on guard because it obviously is a very dynamic time. So you asked me about, you know, how you look ahead. What are the things that sort of, you know, you wonder what do we have to be prepared for? And I'll speak in terms of the pandemic more than anything. And so, look, number one, we have to always keep safety at the top of our mind, no matter what. I mean, safety has got to be for our customers, communities, coworkers. But secondly, you know, in light of sort of this different work environment and as things have changed and we have the great resignation, right, taking place across our country, well, you know, we have to work very hard to retain and continue to attract the best and the brightest. You know, we're going to have to you know, evolve our practices. We're going to be working in a hybrid work environment now and frankly in the future. Some are always going to be, you know, in the field, in the, in the power plants all the time. But, um, but there's going to be a, a great deal more hybrid work environments. So you have to have leaders that are going to be effective in leading people in a hybrid work environment. So we have to give them the tools to be effective in doing that. And at the same time, you know, with everyone being disparate and, and away from the, the office, you have to still maintain your strong focus on coworker engagement and culture. Right? Those are really important. That's how we've gotten to where we've been as Amron. We have a very strong culture, very strong commitment to what we're doing. We can't lose that edge. So those are things that we're doing. We're taking actions. And like I said, safety at the top. We need to start bringing our folks back and continuing to, to lean forward to serve our customers, but also to make sure that we're keeping that robust culture that we love so much here. I know you mentioned it briefly in response to one of my previous questions about your financial results and, and shareholder dividend. But as I was I was preparing for the conversation today, I noted that Emran has actually had a track record of giving sort of a consistent good earnings uh, and dividends for the last uh, decade or so, or even more perhaps. So can you just say what has been the key to that success? I mean, think it's not an easy thing to do, but you seem to have done it in spite of some of the structural factors affecting the global economy. So what's your key to success? Mm-hmm. It, um, you know, Lawrence, it's, it's pretty much what we were just talking about before. It's, it's our coworkers, honestly. It is their absolute commitment to executing the strategy and focus on executing it. You know, it seems pretty straightforward, but it's not so simple, especially as you pointed out in, in sort of challenges times that we had. You know, it's it's about safely and, and successfully executing robust infrastructure projects. You know, spending billions and billions of dollars investment each year, but not just going out there and getting it done, but getting it done in, you know, in an excellent fashion and delivering value to our customers. It's about, in the policy space, working with key stakeholders to get constructive regulatory outcomes and, and good energy and economic policy so we can continue to do the things we want to do. It's a, it's about embracing a, a culture of continuous improvement, right? Just never being satisfied. And, and certainly it's about creating and capitalizing on opportunities. All those things, among you know many others, really helped us do the things that you said in terms of delivering strong growth for our shareholders. But you know, frankly, when we're doing that, we're growing our community as well, right? Because when we make investments in our industry and in our company, you know, those investments are only you know raising the community up because those investments stay home. They create jobs. 
and uh, make a significant difference in terms of driving inclusive economic growth. Yeah, it's, it's true what you say. And, and I think I want to move now to this whole issue of the world in which we live where energy is so essential. And we saw last fall weather-induced dynamics that affected the supply generation in, um, in, in Europe, uh, in Japan. We had issues that linked natural gas to renewables, the nuclear, coal. All of these resources are some interdependencies we see there now, given what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Europe, this whole issue of resource diversity. Uh, why is that important for not just resiliency, but also just for affordability? Can you just talk about this this issue of resource diversity, why we need to focus on that as, as a globe uh, in terms of where we go going forward. Absolutely. Well, you know, Lawrence, you know, I, I strongly believe that uh, resource diversity is, is absolutely critical for resiliency. It's critical, certainly, for energy security, and, and it's, you know, critical for, you know, affordability. And you, and you said it well. You know, I think we knew this in the past, but I think it's just been really exacerbated in terms of our awareness given this, you know, the Russian and Ukrainian crisis, you know, having a diverse energy mix is so critical to energy security. And so the reality is, you know, part of the challenge that we have putting aside the energy security piece, even if you didn't have that, you know, as we go to this cleaner energy future, we recognize that we're going to use greater levels of intermittent resources like renewables, right? And they're still going to require some baseload capacity for energy security. And, and you know, it, from my perspective, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to really understand that, you know, having a diverse mix, having options, especially as technology continues to evolve, those are going to give you the greatest ability to provide long-term customer affordability, right? If you limit your options, you're just putting yourself at greater risk. And so you put all those things together, those are those are things that I will tell you that are, I would say it's not new news to Dameron. You know, earlier I talked about our, our diverse generation mix. You know, we have nuclear, we have solar, wind, coal, natural gas, hydro. We even have pump storage, right? These are all part of our generation mix. And it gives us the ability to really enhance the resiliency of the grid, enhance energy security, and all those resources over time that played a significant role in affordability. Now, we are, as an industry, as a company, systematically going to close down our coal plants. We're going to do it in a responsible fashion. And we're going to replace those things with, with renewables and, and other new clean energy technologies as we continue to, to move forward. But I tell you, uh, at the end of the day, one thing is for sure, that having that diverse mix as a company, as a country, is, is, is going to be absolutely critical. And you're going to hear, I think, a lot more about that conversation going forward. So I want to move to an area where I know you are very, very passionate about water because you were, uh, you are on the board of EPRI and you actually serve as chairman of EPRI once upon a time. So let's talk a lot about innovation and, and I'll just, you know, sort of I'll give you a few questions, but short ones, and maybe you can respond to them more generically. So, you know, the importance of innovation, you know, your view on that, the pace of innovation and its adoption in our industry, I'd like to see, you know, hear your thoughts on that. And, and then two other aspects of innovation, one specifically, the role of government and private sector in terms of accelerating R&D collaboration. And then lastly, which perhaps I think everybody want to hear about is what is Ameren doing in terms of innovation itself? So, so maybe you can sort of, uh, those four areas, you can tackle them, but then end on, well, where's Ameren when it comes to innovation and some of the projects you all are working on? Yeah, they're, they're quite a list, but let me, let me see if I can pick off most of those things, Lawrence. So you know, look, let me start with this. You know, you're right. Innovation, you know, it's a passion of not just mine, but, but certainly Ameren. And when I think about innovation, it's a big word, but, you know, it includes, you know, things, of 
course, like robust research and development funding and development and demonstration projects and all these things have been, and they're going to continue to be critical for, for Ameren and frankly, our industry. If we're going to achieve our clean energy transition goals, I mean, innovation is going to be front and center. You know, it, um, you know, having been around this industry for some 20, 30 years now, I will say our industry didn't get a great deal of recognition on the progress we've made in, in, in employing innovative technologies, not just to support the clean energy transition, but and we talk about innovation, it goes beyond that. It's, you know, it's about the, making the energy grid more resilient and secure, just like we've been talking about. Now, that was, that was several years ago. You know, the, the, I would say today, through a lot of hard work and delivering results, I think that perception has changed. And so I think that you know, stakeholders now see our industry as, as leading the clean energy transition and know that they know that we're going as fast as we can, but we have to make sure as we do it, we're leaning on innovative um, technologies, but we also... We have to ensure that, you know, we balance this transition with reliability and affordability. So far, we've been successful. I would say at the end of 2021, you probably know the data as well as I do, but it's, you know, our carbon emissions are down around 40% below 05 levels. That's quite an accomplishment, but, you know, look, we're not done. We can't be done. And, you know, we've been doing this by using really advances in technologies like in renewable energy and grid technologies over the last decade, but we're going to have to make more progress in the decade ahead. As we've been talking to key stakeholders, both in Washington and around, you know, we, we've we've been clear that, you know, from a clean energy transition standpoint, we've done work with this with EPRI and others. You know, we think we can achieve 80 to 85 percent carbon reductions below the 05 levels using really existing technologies. That's by 2050. But the reality is that's not net zero, right? And so this is truly where innovation around these clean energy technologies has to come in. And so we need to continue taking the steps in the R&D space for low-carbon technologies like hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, long-duration storage, advanced nuclear technologies, you know, the list can go on and on. And so, so when you think about this, you know, this is really where you asked about, you know, where does the public and the private partnership come in? But this is exactly where this comes in, right? We need strong energy policies to support these clean energy technologies. And I'll tell you. Now, we've made great progress in the last year with the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. I mean, it is providing significant and important funding for these clean energy technologies and, and integrated resilience, right? My sense is that that won't be the last one, but it was an important one, no doubt. But that's the public piece. But, you know, we, we have more. You know, we can't stop there. And I think this is why you're hearing Aaron and, and EEI and others strongly advocating for additional clean energy tax incentives that, that we believe would not only accelerate the transition, but you, know, you talk about affordability. I mean, innovation, for innovation's sake, has to not only be technologically good, but it has to be make it affordable. That's what these clean energy tax incentives can really do. So this is what the public piece can be. But we as the private sector, you know, we have to, we have to do our role too. Not only do we have to you know, implement these technologies, but you know, we have to make our own investments. So yes, what's Ameren doing? Well, you know, for years, obviously, we've been investing in, in technology. But I'll tell you, one of the things that we've been doing, this again is with the Electric Power Research Institute. Now, we, along with others, are, are significant sponsors of what's called a low-carbon resource initiative. And this is bringing, you know, the best minds, not just of EPRI, but of our industry, in and outside of our industry together, to really explore, you know, how these low-carbon resource technologies can be implemented effectively into the grid in a timely fashion. So, 
of really being an important project. And you're going to hear a lot more about that. I would say we're, we're still relatively early stage, but we're working with the DOE and the, and the labs. All those folks are coming to the table to try and, and accelerate this clean energy transition. We at Airman, we've also invested in accelerators, right? Energy accelerators. And, um, and we've done some on our own working and some working with EPRI. And so, you know, we, we're doing all these things, Lawrence, at the same time, making sure that we stay focused on doing what we have to do every day, delivering safe, reliable, and affordable energy. And so that's our job, to continue to, to do what we do today, but also to lean forward to, to make sure we deliver this clean energy future. And I'm excited about it. Certainly an excellent balance. Well, before we wrap things up, I have about two more, just two more questions to wrap things up. And it's been a fabulous conversation, a lot of good food for thought you've given the audience. But one thing I know is very important is that change, whether big or small, always comes with risk and opportunities. And as we talk about the transitioning of the energy system globally, there are some transition-related risks that people are talking about. But from your perspective, what would be one or two of those risks that you think we should definitely pay attention to and, and perhaps you know, start thinking about how we tackle them going forward? Yeah, you know, Lawrence, um, it, um, you know, we are excited about the clean energy transition and, and the future, but, but it has its, its shared challenges. You know, certainly we've been talking about this almost throughout our entire conversation. You know, one of the important things that we have to focus on as part of clean energy transition is that um, we don't negatively impact reliability. And I, I just can't emphasize enough the importance of having a reliable and resilient energy grid because as more and more things are electrified, and they will be, you know, the need for safe and reliable electricity is going to be critical you know, for our customers, for our country. And as we talked before about the renewable energy, you know, that's going to be an important part of this clean energy transition, but it's intermittent characteristics are going to make managing the energy grid more challenging. And, and one of the things I should have mentioned before, but I'll mention now, this, you know, this is why I strongly believe that when we think about mitigating this risk, now, we have to think about baseload resources. And this is why, you know, I, I really believe natural gas must play an important, yet I would say an evolving role in the clean energy transition. Now, especially if we can employ carbon capture and storage technology. I think that's going to really be the important at scale, at scale. So not only is it going to benefit reliability, but, you know, Lawrence, I think it's going to really enhance energy security and gives us, again, another tool from an affordability perspective. And I would say the same thing about nuclear power. Right? And nuclear power, you know, we have to retain our existing plants, so critical. We have to extend their lives, so critical. And we do have to move forward on advanced uh, nuclear reactors. You know, this is all going to be part of that reliability equation. It's, it's energy grid investments, but also generation. I'll tell you another piece that, that comes very closely with this is transmission. You know, transmission is the backbone to the energy grid. And so you know, for us to be able to have energy grid resiliency, and enable clean energy, the clean energy transition, you know, we are going to have to take the time to plan, site, and construct these projects. And we need to start moving out on them now. And, uh, and as you know, it takes time. It takes time. And, 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 and people, our companies certainly working with the regional transmission operators and others are taking steps. But it is a big deal. And the investments are significant to enable all the things that we want to do in the transmission space. So I would think that's another thing to keep an eye on. You know, Lawrence, we've got to keep an eye on the grid technologies that we're putting in, the digital technology. So what does that mean? It means that you have to be mindful of cybersecurity issues too, right? We're going to have, you know, a more resilient grid on one hand by using these digital technologies, more reliable, but obviously we, we open ourselves up to cyber attacks. So we have to make sure that we're doing all the right things around that. And look, at the end of the day, you know, if we can address 
and you could go on and on. The list could go on and on. But those are just a handful of things that I would say as we think about the clean energy transition and that we need to be mindful of. Those are those are some of the top three that I would say we have to be mindful of. And of course, affordability, which we mentioned already. Amazing how how your response uh, could be almost uh, prescient given where we are with what's happening in Europe right now with regards to Ukraine and also what's happening in Europe with regards to natural gas and renewables uh, and, and for that matter, nuclear in Germany. So it's very, very interesting set of perspectives. Before we end, uh, Warner, uh, I just like to move now to 2050, right? We've talked a lot about what's happening now, 10 years from now. But if we go to 2050, this is more personal, but what kind of world do you imagine we'll be living in that Emma will be operating in in the year 2050? If you could just give us some, uh, you know, your, your, your projection, if you may, and what concerns you about that future you see in front of us and what excites you about the future you see in front of us? Well, whew, 2050, you know, look, Lawrence, I, I mean, I, well, it's a broad, I'll, I'll try and keep my comments to more energy related things as that's probably where my expertise lies. But you know, look, I, well, it's hard to look out to 2050, especially when you think about the things going around today. I, I got to tell you, I, I am optimistic about our, our energy future. You know, the, my optimism comes because I really believe and I'm confident in our industry's ability to achieve our, our net zero carbon emissions by 2050. I think we're going to be able to do it in a safe, reliable, and affordable fashion. And one of the reasons I think we're going to do it, it won't be easy, but one of the reasons we can do it is, you know, we have an industry that works extremely well together. I mean, I think that's, you know, when you're part of the critical infrastructure, not just the country, but also the impacts that we can have around the globe, we think about supply chains and others, you know, to have leaders, industry come together like we do, you know, gives you a sense of optimism. But, you know, that's easy, that the hard stuff is actually executing strategies. And, you know, we're well aligned on the types of things that we have to do in terms of, of investing in the clean energy technologies that we just spoke about, continuing to work you know, collaboratively with uh, with federal and state policymakers, they have the right energy policies, and working with others. You know, we we know what we don't know, and we know we have to bring others into the tent to to collaborate with some of the best minds in our space around research, development, and deployment of new technology. So I'm, I think we're going to have that clean energy future that we're aspiring to have by 2050. I really do. I think part of that just won't be what we do. It's what other industries do. And so we have to enable part of that too. And I think you're going to see a, a transportation sector that's going to be electrified. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward over the next decade or two in terms of what the, the new offerings are going to be for EVs. I think it'll be mind-blowing, but I'm excited about that. You're seeing some of those things now. I think too, Lawrence, you're going to see is a space whereby we talked a little bit earlier about this, about, about sourcing more of the technology. I think you're going to see greater levels of, of those materials that we need from a, a clean energy transition and even for our own day-to-day -day operations being sourced here. And I think that's going to spur economic development. It's not going to happen overnight, but you're looking at the 2050. I think there'll be some real steps to be doing that. And I'm also optimistic when I think about our energy future. I'm optimistic about the talent that we're going to be able to attract. I really think we're starting to see some of it today. You know, when I talk to young people today, I talk to our coworkers when we recruit others from the outside of our industry. You know, our industry is a place where you, you can make a difference. It is absolutely a place you can make a difference, not just for today, but for decades to come and for your children's children. You know, it, it sounds a little bit, you know, a little pie in the sky. It's just true. And um, and I think we're going to have some of the best and brightest minds in our industry because they know they can, they can truly make a difference. And I think at the end of the day, what you'll see over time is this industry continue to lead the clean energy transition going as fast as we can, balancing all the things we said before about reliability, affordability, energy security, among others. 
But I think at the end of the day, we're going to have the clean energy future that we all aspire to have. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take a lot of work. But um, but I'm confident that we're up to it. Well, Warner, as a servant in chief, uh, you have a lot to do. You're a very busy man. Besides working at Amron, I'm sure you have involved in a lot of philanthropic organizations and time is of of the essence for all that you do. So just help us to understand as we end this conversation, what do you do for fun? How does the servant in chief relax and just recharge himself to be able to do all the work that you have to get done? Well, you know, I tell you one of the things I that I'm very blessed to have just a wonderful family. I absolutely enjoy spending time with my wife and children, traveling with them. I love to cook. Right. I love doing those things. And of course, I love being active, whether it is out exercising, whether it's um, being out on the water somewhere, try to play golf. It's not pretty, but I do try to do that. So but the most important thing I do is just spend some quality time with the family that that grounds me and uh, gives me the energy to continue to do the things that I do, both in our energy space and in the community. Well, thank you so much, Warner, for spending some quality time with us here at the Global Circuit. Again, our guest has been Warner Baxter. He's the executive chairman of Ameren Corporation and also vice chairman of Edison Electric Institute. Thank you, Warner, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Thank you, Lawrence. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org slash international.